2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning verse 9, verse 8, sorry. Therefore, right after he told him, you've been given the spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. He says, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord, or our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul is writing to Timothy, as you know, and it's inevitable. He knows it. And it's inevitable for us. Call it destiny. Call it fate. Call it whatever you want. It's going to happen. The nature of the way we live our lives says that it's going to happen. The fact that those who, other people around us who live this way, it happens with them, says it's going to happen. And the constant call of Scripture says it's going to happen. What you believe and how you live as a Christ follower is on a clash course with our culture. Collision will happen. Is that true? Gary Bug says it will. If you genuinely follow Christ, it will put you at odds with your culture. Is that true? There is a collision course. You are on it. You are on it this week. It will happen to you this week. How are you going to respond to it? How are you prepared to deal with it? Paul's writing from prison. He's on death row. He says, here's my chains, verse 16. He refers to his chains. And he says, it's the gospel that I was appointed to preach, right? I'm a preacher and a teacher and apostle. And that's why I suffer. If he got rid of his faith, the suffering would go away. You get that, right? But because he's a faithful believer, he's going to suffer. It's a testimony about the Lord, right? Or of me, his, he's not a Roman prisoner. He's not Caesar's captive. He is the Lord's prisoner. He is captive because of Christ. Following Christ leads to trouble. It leads to collision. Do you know that yet? Has that happened to you yet? Do you know that what you're celebrating and refreshing today is going to cause you trouble this week. You do know that, right? Paul has Timothy in his mind. He's looking at him in his mind, and he's picking up his pen, and he's saying to him, this trouble I'm, I'm facing, you are going to face too. He describes the mission with four words. This is testimony about our Lord. Lord means master. Jesus is not just your Savior. He's your master. 
And this testimony that we're reviewing today, this gospel that we're celebrating today, it is the message of our master that we've been entrusted with and we are to live out and we are to proclaim. It is also called the gospel in verse 8. It's called the pattern of sound words in verse 13. You know what a pattern is? Anybody remember a pattern for sewing? You ever been to your grandmother's room, and her sewing room, and she has this little piece of paper thing, little like a folder, and you take out a pattern on this real waxy-like paper, and she's able to take the instructions on the pattern and fit that to the material she's got and create the dress that's on the front of the, the little folder thing. It's called a pattern. There's a particular way to do this. And what Paul says is, Timothy, I've given you a pattern of sound words that I expect you to honor. These are your words. This is what you preach. This is what you live out. You can't change this. You can't alter this. You can't modify this. You can't update this with your culture to make it more convenient. This is the pattern you've been given, and you are to honor it. And when you do, it will cause trouble. When you honor these words, this pattern, when you honor this gospel and this deposit, when you decide that you're going to preach it, proclaim it, live it, honor it, and guard it, it's going to put you at odds with other people. And it leads to collision. Living like Christ, following the steps of the Holy Spirit, being made to look like Jesus, you come into conflict with what others think and how others live. That in itself is not bad. There are three things that could happen. Three things that could happen from this collision. One is, it's an opportunity to influence them. We're at odds. We're living in a culture that doesn't agree with us. Peter tells us that when you live this way, people will ask, why do you live that way? And when somebody asks you a question, you be ready with an answer. But when you answer, do it with gentleness and respect. We're not being obnoxious. We're not to be ridiculous and hateful. We're not to be judgmental and, and just just mean that's not a if you if you are suffering for the gospel because you preach the gospel in a way that's obnoxious mean or or hateful your problems are your creation that's not God's idea he even says that in verse 13 of our text if you'll look at that just real quick when he says follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Don't forget, you've got the content from Jesus, but you've got the character of Jesus to honor too. Put those two together, and if you suffer because of your obnoxiousness, my child, that's on you, God says. A lot of Christians do this. We've got to be careful about this. It gives us a chance to show what Christ is like and what he believes and what he has us to live and and so when you have this collision always be kind always be gentle and use it as an opportunity to show what God wants us to share with the world but sometimes that create that conflict creates this tension and collision because we live in a majority culture that is overwhelmed with differences and demands conformity the demand for conformity can cause tension because either we, we fit in with the world or the world looks at us and says, you've got to change. Or you, what do you do? And there's a second response we can make. We can back down in shame. This passage is just full of shame language. You heard it all the way through as we read it. He, he says, don't be afraid, don't be timid in verse 7, Timothy. I don't want you backing down and being intimidated by the world. That's shame. 
Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Don't, 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 don't cower in shame because of what, what the Lord would have you teach. And he says, don't be ashamed of the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm your brother in Christ and I'm the leader of this movement and yet I'm in prison. You know, if I end up in prison on Tuesday, I have a feeling the elders are not only going to fire me, but they're going to distance Valley View from their preacher in prison. That's just, in our culture, that's just kind of like it's got a stigma with it, right? Well, Paul was the number one guy, the face of the Christian movement, and he's in prison, and it made a lot of people like, that's shameful. Paul's not ashamed, despite the chains. But Paul does make reference in 15, verse 15, he says there's a lot of preachers that have turn their back on me, not the faith. They're still faithful, but they've turned their back on me because they're ashamed of me. So this, there's this shame all the way through this passage, and that's a shame that we can sometimes wear because of the Christian faith, but we don't use the word shame. That's not the word we use. The word he really means for us is sometimes we're embarrassed. Sometimes we're intimidated in the world because we're embarrassed by what our faith demands of us what we have to believe given what everybody else believes, how we are supposed to live given how everybody else lives. And sometimes, to be honest with you, Christians kind of are embarrassed by You know what that embarrassment's like? Like a 14-year-old boy, 15-year-old boy going to school, a lot of his classmates drive their own vehicles, and, and his dad drives him in a 2005 Suburban that's green with a dented and rusted fender. Take you to school, and he gets out, and he's so embarrassed. He thinks everybody's looking at him and thinking, what a loser, right? Because if dad drives him in a Suburban that's 2005, and it's green, and it's dented, and he would rather walk uphill both ways three miles in the snow than to be dropped off this way. And you know that feeling he feels? You know what it's like. That's what some Christians feel like when we live out our faith in front of a world that doesn't agree with us. Or maybe, or maybe it's that girl who goes to school in her Walmart clothes when everybody else is wearing Lululemon, right? Maybe, maybe that's what it is. Everybody else is decked out in the most fashionable stuff, and she's got to go in the Walmart clothes, right? And she, she feels so exposed as being less than. Everybody's looking at her. Well, we know something about her. And that feeling right there, that exposed and that embarrassment, that's what the word shame means to us. And sometimes we Christians do feel the shame. Why? Because you stand out for what you don't do or don't believe. Everyone else is doing this. Everyone else is wearing this. Everyone else is saying this. Everyone else is watching and reading this. And everyone else is going online to this. Everybody else is doing that and they're talking about it. And they're, and they're just, you know, just having these discussions about it. And I can't do that. And maybe I really want to. Maybe I'd really like to. Not only do I want to feel that acceptance from being able to do that, but that's the thing I'm drawn to. And yet the only reason I'm not doing it is because my face says I can't. And sometimes it makes me embarrassed and ashamed that I hold this faith when no one else does. Does your faith Does your faith have the power to veto you? Does your faith have the right as you look in a mirror to tell you no 
And not only does it have the right to tell you that, but you actually honor the no. Is there anything that you'd really want to do if you could, if it was your druthers, but you don't, simply because your faith tells you not to, and you honor it? Because if your faith is telling you no, and you say yes, you are ashamed of your faith. You're ashamed of it. And I want to silence it. I want to mute it. I want to put it in my backpack and hide it until I get home. And I'll take it back out and I'll start believing it then. But you've already, you've already revealed your hand. You're ashamed of what it's making you say no to. And you know what Jesus said when people were deciding whether to follow him? Listen, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. Deny yourself. You've got to say no to you. And I don't, like, I don't like hearing no from anybody, most especially me. Or sometimes, when you stand out for what you do or what you believe, and it makes you look so strange in the world, if you actually believe, if you actually believe some of the core of our doctrine is everybody's created in the image of God and deserves respect, if you actually believe that and live that out, you are going to be talking to some people that some of your best friends would never talk to. You're going to be treating people with respect and others are going to be wondering, why are you doing that? That's somebody who can be discarded and ignored and not treated with any kind. Don't even look at that person. You are, you are jeopardizing your social standing just by being seen with that person. And yet your face says, I must, I must, because that's what I believe. And if you do that, if you back down from that respect because you're afraid of what others will think, you are ashamed of the gospel. The main point is this. If you could just dispense with that thing, that one belief, that one action, if you could just erase it, if you could just change the faith and take that out, if you could just get rid of it and minimize it and modify it and take this out, your troubles would go away. All that embarrassment would go away. No one would look at you different. Listen, here's what I'm saying. So, when we pass up opportunities to be like Jesus... In order to accommodate the world, we're being ashamed. I'm going to say this, and I'm, it's going to tick some of you off. That's okay, because sometimes sermons do this. There's been some discussion of setting up a dress code for church activities. I don't think so. But you know what? I know why people have done that. I, have you been around Valley View in the last two months and noticed that we might actually need one? Don't nod your head. Don't say amen. Don't say it. If you've been around Valley View in the last two months and you've taken a look around, you're going, we need a dress code around here. I know what you're saying. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that, but I do see the need for it, right? If you refuse to value the gospel's demand for modesty because you want to be cool in the world, you're being ashamed of the faith. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be looked at funny. I want to dress like everybody else. The gospel is we're not like everybody else. The church doesn't need a dress code, but parents do. 
until it's ingrained in their heart about what modesty is and what my life is supposed to be and how I'm being in conformity with a gospel that makes me different and distinct. Let's put that in our kids to where the church doesn't need a dress code. They've got it in their hearts. No more backing down in shame. Let's take up the opportunity. How can I model Jesus and the gospel even in my wardrobe? Can you believe it? Does it go to that level? Is he that invasive? Does it go that far that even what I wear every day is an expression of my identity in Christ? Yes. And when we change the word and how we interpret it in order to endorse what is popular in the world. We are being ashamed. Now sometimes there are passages that are confusing, I get it, but there's an awful lot of passages that are very crystal clear. And when we know what it says but we're afraid to say it because the world's like this, when we back down and we start changing it, well, I can see it this way. And we change the word because we're afraid to clash with the world. We're being ashamed. We should not be ashamed. And we all do this. I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. Because it comes back to me, and it's true. I have areas like this. There are areas where I, I think I cower down, and that's the second. This is the one. You, you have these opportunities to present the truth. Sometimes they don't want to hear it. Sometimes they just want to make you back down in shame. They want to overwhelm you with their mass numbers and make you actually shrink back, as the Hebrews writer says, shrink back from what I believe, and that's called shame. But there's a third option. It's the one Paul wants you to take. I want you to be willing to suffer suffer now suffer could be a lot of costs it could be death probably not to you this week probably not to you but to Paul it was Paul knew his days were numbered he's on death row he knows he's going to die and he knows he's going to die because he stood for the faith he could have backed down at any moment recanted and had a perfectly good normal life and nobody would know his name That's not going to happen to you, uh, probably. Uh, uh, it could be mockery. You could be made fun of. That's not death, but y'all, that's hard. And I'm not, I'm not belittling that at all. I'm not saying that's no big deal. It is a big deal. It, you could be the subject of some funny stares or some laughter at your expense. It could be uh, that people talk about you and post things about you uh, in these places it may be the worst of your generation you know what the worst of your generation's persecutions are FOMO fear of missing out it could be you cut you you could be cut out from some of the things other people do and that is in your generation the worst kind of ostracism you can face and your faith could cost you that and Paul says, please pay it. That sounds so heartless on a Sunday morning when we send our kids off to school and I need to say to them, now, honey, honey, you're going to suffer today. I want you to suffer. Can you imagine that, sending your kids off to school? You're going to face challenge. I want you to suffer, honey. Now, suffer well, right? I mean, who wants to do that? But that's exactly what the church is asking. 
But he doesn't leave us without a reason why. Why should you be willing to suffer? Because of who you're suffering for. How many of you have raised kids that's cost you a fortune? How many would be independently wealthy if it weren't for your kids? Raise your hands up high. That's a lot of you. But you got kids, so you're poor. I get it. How many of you remember long, Michael, I expect to raise a hands on this, uh, expect long nights of sleeplessness with your kids? Raise your hand. Right? Okay, right? It's everyone. They've cost you sleep. They've cost you money. Have your kids ever embarrassed you? Oh, honesty's a beautiful thing. You've made my point. Your kids cost you and they've made you suffer financially, emotionally, physically maybe. Do you regret it? I wonder why. What you got from them and through them was greater than anything they ever cost you, right? What he goes on to say, and I want you to see it as we reread 8 through 10. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering. Share in suffering. This is a word he coins. Share in suffering for the gospel. Share in this. Join me. Join others who have to share, okay? And this, you're suffering for the gospel of the power of God who saved us. He called us to a holy calling, not because of what he would get from us, our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. He gave us in Christ before the ages ever began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I want you to know what you get from the gospel is greater than anything you'll suffer for it. The suffering of God in the gospel is greater than any suffering you'll do for it. And here's what he did. He sent his son. He sent his son knowing what was going to have to happen. He He was sacrificed right in full view of God. He saw everything up front and personal. And he saw the suffering of his son. And then the benefits that come from that, he turned around and handed it to you with no cost to you. It doesn't cost you anything. It cost him everything. And he hands it to you. And you know what it did? It got rid of death. Jesus defeated death. You will never have to die that way because he gave you the gospel. But not only that, he said he brought life and immortality to light. He let us know for the first time ever what's beyond it. And do you know what's beyond it? Reunion with him and life evermore. And tomorrow, we're going to lay Rufus into the ground. But I'm going to tell you something. I know that's not the end because of the gospel that Jesus brought. And the suffering he gave for that, so that he could turn around and give it to us at no cost. Not only that, and he'll never profit from us, will he? You take all our good works and even all our sufferings, will it ever benefit God more than it cost him? No. You suffer with your kids, but you never think of it that way. If you ever suffer with and for the gospel, and you know what the gospel is, you'll never see it that way because of what you got. You know who you're suffering for? You're suffering for a God who gave up his son for you. There's something honorable about that. 
So that when I was with Jeff Stidman the other day, as his dad decided to take the oxygen off, it was just, it was, it was, he, he could live for a long time without oxygen on, but he can't live with it off. He said, I'm, that's enough. He said goodbye to all his friends, and he took the oxygen off. He knew what it meant. I said, this could be a long delay for you. This could be a long day for you, Jeff. He said, I know. It's an honor to do this for my dad. Is it an honor to suffer a little for the gospel? Should it be? Paul seems to think so. There's a second reason. It's a weird line when he says, I'm not, I'm not going to suffer. I, I, I mean, I'm not, gonna, I'm not ashamed even because of these chains because I know whom I've believed. And I'm persuaded. This is the weirdest line, and no one knows how to interpret it, but I'm going to say the best I, I can do with it. When Paul says, he usually says, I've been given a deposit by God that I protect and I work out of. The gospel is a deposit given to Paul that he lives out of and honors in every way. But this phrase, he says, I'm not afraid to suffer for the gospel because I know whom I've believed, God, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep my deposit, my deposit with him until that day. What is God deposited the gospel with Paul so that he could honor. What is Paul depositing with God? What is it that he's given God to keep hold of until the day of judgment? And here's what, himself. I'm willing to entrust my entire being to God, and he's going to take care of me. And listen, I can hear people say, well, don't worry, God will take care of you. And I know a lot of people in America who never really struggled at all. Oh, don't worry, God will take care of you. And I know that's true, but it's kind of like, yeah, do you really know that? We're talking about Paul. Do you remember Paul? A night in the open sea, 40 lashes minus one five times in prison at least three times. He's suffering to the point of death several times. This is a Paul who's been through everything and he comes out of it and he's on death row and he says to Timothy, I can guarantee you God's going to take care of you no matter what happens to you. Do I believe we serve a God who can take care of our teenagers suffering for their faith on a Tuesday afternoon at 2, 10? Can God, can God take care of my daughter when she's faced with a challenge of her faith somewhere? I know he can. And I'll tell her, you're ever in a spot like that, you will be taken care of by your God. But there's a third one, I promise. I'm going too long, I know. But that's just the way it is today. Okay, the Holy Spirit was provided for just this reason. Let me tell you why the Holy Spirit's here. Acts chapter 1. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. This is the apostles before Jesus goes. Uh, uh, Spirit is going to give power. And do you know why he's given you power? Do you know why the Spirit's in you? Do you know why God put the Spirit in you? So that you will be able to witness to God in this world. That's the only reason the Holy Spirit was given to you. Every expression of what the Holy Spirit does is because of this. He wants you to have the ability to witness to God in a world that opposes him. And he knows the challenges you're going to face. And so what we know is in verse 7 of, first, of 2 Timothy 1, he says the Spirit has given you power and love and self-discipline. Why those three things? Because when you try to live out the Christian faith in a world that's opposed to it, you need power to overcome the discouragement and the opposition. You need love because you need to keep the love for your 
enemy very hefty in your mind. And you need self-discipline because you're not going to want to. And God says the Holy Spirit puts this in ample measure in you, Timothy. The Holy Spirit puts this in ample measure. And you, it's kind of like a football game we are watching yesterday. The football game, you're given three timeouts. You need to use them all. Saving them doesn't, get, doesn't benefit you at all. And, and Paul says to Timothy, you've got this from the Spirit, power, love, and self-discipline. So get out there and make yourself use every bit of it. You've got an unending supply. Don't be frugal. And then in verse 14, the Holy Spirit who indwells you. There'll be people debate this all the time in our brotherhood. Does the Holy Spirit indwell you? Of course the Holy Spirit indwells you because you need power and love and self-discipline all the time. So wherever you go, the Holy Spirit of God goes with you and gives you exactly what you need to be a witness. And Timothy, you're going to face things. You're going to be opposed And when you think, I don't think I can do this. Yes, you've got power, Timothy. I don't want to do that. Yeah, you've got love, Timothy. I don't really want to. I know, but you've got self-discipline to overcome what you want and do what you need. There's an old movie that uh, from uh, the setting of the movie was in the 60s. It's called The Help. And it had these white families that were kind of crusty people, aristocratic. They kind of ignored their kids. The kids were just kind of blah in the way. And so until the kids got old enough to be an advantage to the family, they had these black nannies come and raise the kids. And these white nannies would just take care of them, feed them, make sure they're okay, teach them how to be good people, all that stuff. But basically until they're old enough to go into uh, their schools or whatever. Well, there was this black nanny that loved doing that, and she had this little girl in this movie, and she'd say to that little girl, everybody considered her inconsequential, she didn't matter, she just, until she gets old enough, she's just kind of there, but this lady would look at her and say, you is smart, you is kind, you is important, you is smart, you is kind, and you is important. And then she'd have her say it, have, have the girl say it with her. Say it with me. And the little girl with that weird kind of language of a two-year-old would say, you is smart, you is kind, you is important. And she would say to her, there's going to be people thinking you aren't. There's going to be people underestimating you. There's going to be people mistreating you. And you need to know what? And we'd say together, you is smart, you is kind, you is important. And then at the end, when she was fired, she got that little girl with tears in her eyes. She says, you're my last little girl, and I'm leaving. The little girl was just didn't want that to happen, but she said, but do something for me. What do I always tell you? And without help from the nanny, the little girl looks at her and says, you is smart. You is kind. You is important. Because in a world that's going to tell you you're not, You need to know you are. I want to tell you something, church. You have power. You have power. Say it with me. You have power. Do you believe that? It's true. God gave it to you. It's not yours. It's God's. Let's say it together. You have power. Say it with me. You have power. And I want you to know that this week because you're going to be on a collision course with a world that doesn't believe in your faith. And you're going to walk back down and you're going to say to yourself, you have power. And you got to, oh, oh, guys, you, that was too delayed. That was like, I'm not even sure of it. I want you to say it like
mean it. You have power. And you're talking to yourself. You're not talking to somebody. You're not talking to me. You're talking to you. And when that comes up and there's a collision course, you don't know if you can carry it through or not. You're going to say to yourself, but you also have love because the world needs to see that love too. It's power harnessed by love. So say it with me. You have love. You have love. That's from the Spirit. That's from God. That's from the gospel. You have love. Say it. You have power and you have love. And even with that, that old man's going to want to say to you, I don't want to do this. And you've got to say to yourself, you have self-control. So say that with me together. You have self-control. So this week, whether in school, at job, in the home, whatever, you're going to have those moments when you know what Christ wants you to do and what the Spirit's steps are leading you to. And you're going to be opposed by a world that doesn't agree. And you have a choice to make. Whatever you do, certainly it's an opportunity for influence, but don't back down in shame. Be willing to suffer. And if you wonder how, say to yourself, you have power, you have love, and you have self-discipline. And for God's sake, use it as a witness for him. If there's anyone who needs to respond this morning, the invitation is open. God is waiting to receive you. Whether the initial time of welcoming Jesus as Lord or welcome him back as Lord into your heart. Make it known as we stand and as we sing.